0: Hello and welcome to The Berkeley Remix, a seasonal podcast series from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. In this podcast series, we draw on thousands of interviews to bring those stories to life. Please join us for the third season of The Berkeley Remix, entitled First Response, AIDS and Community in San Francisco. At the end of the 1970s, the gay community in San Francisco worked to protect its rights and freedoms, but it also organized to face the unique health and welfare challenges of the LGBT community, especially those of gay men. One key public health problem for gay men in particular was an unintended consequence of their self-expression, liberation, and culture. Sexually transmitted infections. Frequent sexual encounters between men provided an avenue for diseases such as herpes, syphilis, and hepatitis. But as we heard in episode 1, this was in the larger context of free love and the sexual revolution in which many men and women were engaging in unprotected sex with multiple partners. What was different for gay men and women, however, was that many people believed that homosexuality itself was a threat to public health, a misconception that persists today. It's in this context of homophobia that we need to understand the complicated relationship between public health practitioners, authorities, and the gay community. The theme we'll come back to in episode 4. But for many years, gay men developed a network of health practitioners who were sympathetic and often gay themselves. Here is Dr. Paul O'Malley from the San Francisco Department of Health on the City Clinic.
1: I mean, The clinic itself had a history, a reputation going back to the even in the thirties, I guess, before the war. San Francisco's history of being very tolerant, people felt comfortable going there
2: mm-hmm. if they
1: had a sexually transmitted disease instead of maybe going to their private physician or if they just didn't have any medical care at all. And because they knew the staff there was nonjudgmental and plus you know, inexperienced at dealing with these things that they'd get mm-hmm. treated properly. It first beca- the clinic first became well-known in the Haight-Ashbury era with the communes and there was a lot of STD infection. They actually used to have apparently a bus, a shuttle bus, that would go up and down Hate Street, and then go to the clinic. And by the time they drove from one end of Hay Street to the other, I guess by the time they got out to Golden Gate Park, and they had a full bus, and they would go to the clinic and drop everybody off.
3: Oh, uh, I mean, there, there we And
1: uh. so the clinic really developed a reputation then, more for that, you know, during the hippie area. And although I. I have someone I sort of refer to as my gay mother and father, who I met right after I met here, which sort of, which actually is an important part of this whole story, actually, especially when the epidemic begins, because they they had moved here in the late fifties, and they said that. When they went to the clinic, for an to check back in those days, that they really stood out like a sore thrum, is because first of all, well, just being a gay man, but also just because if you walked in there in a three, you know, in a shirt, shirt and tie, made you stand out. Period. Because you know it was the hippie era in the way yeah. we and so they, I mean, these guys were a little older. They were born in the twenties, you know. So this is you know in the, the late sixties, and they were using the, they were, they were the sexually active gay men. They were a couple that had been together for over twenty five years, but they had a very open relationship. Because I used to get the perspective, the history of the STD clinic from them, you know, long before I worked there and what it was like. But then in the 60s, I think in the 70s, when gay men started moving here in larger numbers, like myself by 75 and I'd been here two years, just influx of gay men. I mean the baby boom generation is just so many of us, period. Mm-hmm. You know, whatever percentage were gay. And things are different now than it was 25 years ago. I think Someone sitting, like, in Portland, Oregon today, who's realized that, you know, who's gay and they're 21 years old, know that they can stay in Portland, Oregon and have a very open life and have a community that they could turn to and resources within that community. They didn't have to hop on the bus to move to San Francisco to find that. Yeah.
0: Treating nearly 2,000 people a week, the No Questions Asked City Clinic held an open door for the counterculture of the 1960s, both straight and gay but it also reinforced the prevalent notion that any sexual health problem could be quickly and effectively treated with antibiotics.
1: Following World War II with the development of penicillin and all that, you know, that. My generation, again, I think, grew up with the idea that there was an answer to everything, and treatment mm-hmm. for everything. Yeah. And some of the younger gay men now will ask me, and they go, you know, yeah, you didn't have HIV in your miss, but why didn't people use condoms even back then? You know, after you've had gonorrhea four or five times, wouldn't have that have been enough of a motivation to start using a condom? And I said, you know, you have to have been there. It was the fact that you could go in there and take a handful of pills and you were on your way. It was something, you know, most people just didn't think of the long term. I mean, it wasn't like people were going, well, what are the long term implications of taking pen- these massive doses of penicillin, you know, maybe once a year, even, or a couple of times a year, year in, year out, year out. Yeah. I mean, nobody, everybody was just focused right then on, Wasn't you know, I mean, it, it wasn't just the homosexual committee, it was just, you know, the sexual revolution. It was like, no no limits, ever. no one's gonna tell us, anything. This is going to have a good time, and we're not going to let anything get in the way of it.
0: By the mid-1970s, public health officials in San Francisco were beginning to build relationships with the gay community. Since the 1974 anti-discrimination ordinance was passed, San Francisco's gay population swelled, along with opportunities for gay men to meet and have sex more in the open than before. Dr. Selma Dritz, the Assistant Director of Disease Control for the San Francisco Health Department, describes the rapid development of unique meeting places for gay men in the city, the baths.
3: The baths were not so much places for swimming or washing themselves. They were cubic, large, large um, establishments. One of them, the club baths, was four stories high, I think. They had cubicles where the doors could be closed where there was simply a, a bunk with a mattress and a jar of Crisco. There were also large what were called orgy rooms, which were dark. There was a lot of music going on. It was possible for men to make contact with each other. Sexual contact, I mean now. Even standing up without seeing each other's faces. And some of them actually told me later, I don't know who he was. I never saw his face. However, I'm not trying to be funny about it, but these were places where a man could go and make 10, 15, 20 contacts in a night, depending on how much energy he had. Uh, With that, we began to see an increase in diseases in the city.
0: What Selma Dritz describes next is the rise of enteric diseases, diseases of the gut, also known as diarrheas. These diseases are monitored by public health services because of their virulence, or the ease with which they spread from person to person. Think of restaurant employees who might infect customers. Health officials are required to report such diseases to the Centers for Disease Control in Atlanta, which is how the CDC came to be involved in the AIDS crisis. Here's an indication of the rapid changes in sexual practices and contacts. The enteric disease rates in San Francisco went up five times within two years. But about four out of the five infections were from one specific group, gay men.
3: My job was to find out where these diseases were coming from. Stop the source. That was a good job. Find out who had it and make sure that they didn't pass it on to anyone else. So I did in, intensive interviews. I was able to reach about 70% of the Shigella and hepatitis and amybiasis patients by phone or in person or through interviews with their physicians. And in almost every case I found that it had to be oral-anal or anal-genital contact. Mm-hmm. But in investigating this, I had to make contact with the gay community, members of the gay community, the officers of their various uh, political clubs. There was the Alice Club, the um, Stonewall, the Harvey Milk Club, and the Tavern Guild, which was the association of gay bar managers and, and owners. And tried to pass on word to them that what they were, how they were getting these diaries, and, and the fact that we could cure them of it, but the next time they went out, they would catch it again mm-hmm. because there was no immunity for it. Were they receptive to? Your Many of them were, because they found that we were not being uh, antagonistic or punitive. I tried to make it clear that my job was to stop the diseases, and I didn't care what they did in bed or anywhere mm-hmm. else in the bushes. Mm-hmm. But my job was simply to see that they didn't catch it again, and I didn't want them to get sick. Mm-hmm. And they responded to a, a sympathetic uh, approach, maybe because they had so little of it, I don't know. Mm -hmm. They found that the health department was helpful, that we wanted to be helpful, and the doctors that were curing them, treating them anyhow, were able to tell them that we were trying to help.
0: For its part, the gay community was also mobilizing its own public health networks and leadership. The Bay Area Physicians for Human Rights was formed in 1977 but at the threshold of the closet. Even the name of this group of doctors was chosen so as not to draw too much attention to their identity, which ended up causing some confusion. Here again is Richard Lee Andrews.
2: In this progressive city, there were still a large number of doctors that were nervous about... They could hide under the banner of human rights, conceal it a little bit, although everyone knew what that meant. Yeah. We would get calls from saying help in Guatemala or, you know, human rights, and and we would say, well, frankly, we're, you know, we're really handling here gay issues, gay health issues primarily. But I think that it was just, uh, I think it was our own reticence about being Mm -hmm. open about who we really were initially.
0: But Bay Area Physicians for Human Rights would be drawn more into the public eye when it was asked to participate in the first annual community health fair in San Francisco in 1978
2: you know as we emerged we would get calls from all over the country from people just desperate to talk to a gay or a gay-sensitive physician about whatever was going on in new york or ohio or or, and it could have been something that was psych related that their they had a therapist they were going to that told them that they needed to recover from homosexuality all the way to you know lesbians being very uncomfortable coming out about birth they didn't need birth control and being very fearful of their practitioners or or getting really bad advice. So there was was initially, we were just swamped.
0: This increased visibility led to the establishment of a national organization, the American Association of Physicians for Human Rights, and a greater public role for gay health professionals in San Francisco and across the country. This role would become even more vital as both public health authorities and members of the gay community turned to BAPHR for education and outreach services and materials once multiple outbreaks of rare and strange diseases began to strike down gay men in San Francisco. So, before the epidemic, two things happened. Members of the gay community began to organize around health issues that were relevant to them, but the city public health services and hospitals also became aware of and tried to cater to the unique health needs of the gay community. And finally, there were members of the healthcare communities, doctors, nurses, researchers, and public health workers, who were also gay. People who were members of both communities were essential organizers and participants in community health care, but they also faced difficult challenges when the imperatives of public health ran counter to the perceived best interests of the gay community. Join us next time on First Response when we explore the crisis around the closure of the bathhouses. This podcast was produced, written, and narrated by Paul Burnett. Editing by Ali Sharotis and Paul Burnett. Production and promotion assistance by David Dunham and Shanna Farrell. Special thanks to the band Do Make Say Think, whose music can be found at Constellation Records. Go to cstrecords.com or to your local record store to hear more. Berkeley Remix theme music by Paul Burnett. Thanks also to Scott Colonigo for his piece, When AIDS Was Funny, and to the archives of the Ronald Reagan Library, UC San Francisco, and San Francisco State University. All interview clips were taken from the Oral History Center collections, and the audio digitization was undertaken by David Dunham and the student employees Marissa Uribe, Carla Palacian, Amna Hawk, Holly O'Brien, and Cindy Jinn. I'm Paul Burnett. Thank you for listening.